You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Yes, so for those of you who don't know me, either here or watching online, uh, my name's Rob. I'm also part of the leadership team here at the church. And um, I've been given the task, I'm take this off actually, um, been given the task of talking about the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, and that's why you're all here this morning and you've signed in online, because you want to know what this is all about, uh, I hope. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit later, but um, just to kind of intro that a little bit, um, if you look on, if you've noticed on the board at the back there, just behind where Paul's sitting, there's a board there which sort of just says about us, and on that board there are four in the four corners of that poster are the four pillars, if you like, of, of what we're about as a community. When we're seeking to kind of say, who are we as a church community? These are the things that are really important to us. And in the top right-hand corner, it says that we are committed to an open, progressive theology. We're committed to an open, progressive theology. And as Lee was saying last week, Joe opened up this subject and sort of introduced this subject of progressive Christianity. What, what, what do we mean by that? Uh, and Joe suggested there are three key elements to it. So change, growth and development, and the interplay between tradition and newness. And it's worth listening to the talk. If you haven't already, you can, you can find the podcast. But underlying all of this is a, a willingness to be open. I think that's the key word when we're thinking about progressive Christianity, progressive theologies, that, that word being open, openness. Being open to that which is new or different. Being willing to ask questions. Being willing to live with mystery and doubt. And I think one of the crucial things about uh, progressive theology is that it's not about replacing one set of dogma with another so that we have a new orthodoxy that everybody's supposed to believe. That's not the point. The point is actually it's about trying to do theology differently. It's about a different approach, a different way of doing things, which, as I says, is not afraid to ask questions and is open to mystery and doubt and uncertainty, loose ends. Some of us hate loose ends, but it seems to me that if you're interested in theology, you have to live with loose ends. In fact, if you're living life, you have to cope with loose ends, don't you? That's just how it is. And so we're thinking this morning about how we might take this forward in terms of uh, theology and practice, how might we develop this kind of progressive thinking, progressive theology? But not just our thinking, but also in the way that we live. It's about what we believe and how we live. But first off, what do we mean by theology? So literally, theology just means words about God, theologos, words or ideas about God. Uh, and theology can become a vast complex system of ideas and concepts and philosophy, but it can also be quite simple. Uh, one of the great theologians of the last century was a guy called Karl Barth, a German theologian who uh, lived through uh, the Second World War, was part of the, um, those uh, within the Christian community in Germany who opposed Hitler and uh, put themselves at risk because of that. Um, and Karl Barth produced... 12 volumes of systematic theology, which he called church dogmatics. Six million words. And he wasn't finished when he died. The, the thing was unfinished. He was once asked, 
can you summarize all this theology? And this was his answer. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So theology can be vast, complex, but it can also be very simple. Uh, We sometimes use that word theology, we sometimes kind of extend it to talk about other aspects of life, to sort of think about how we look at life through the lens of faith. So back in March, Rich uh, Blake Lobb came and, and shared with us on a theology of disability. So we sometimes apply the word theology to that, that kind of broader sense of looking at life through the lens of faith. But theology at its heart really is quite a simple thing, words or ideas about God. What is theology for? It's an important question, I think. And I suggest that the purpose of theology is to help us or to enable us to make sense of the world and our place in it. So good theology is not just about thinking straight, but it's about living well. There has to be some practical outworking to it. It's not just a bunch of ideas for people who like ideas. And we might think that theology is that, that it's just for the, you know, for the sort of people who like that sort of thing. But I suspect that all of us here this morning and those of us watching online will have a theology of some sort, some ideas or beliefs about God that will shape our lives to a greater or lesser extent. So the question is, how do we arrive at our theology? How can we ensure that it's something which is dynamic and authentic rather than rigid and second-hand? How do we do it well? And that brings us to the thing that we've all been waiting for, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. This was the, the image that Joe posted on uh, Instagram this week to, uh, to promote uh, this morning's talk. Um, and you can see there, uh, we've got these four aspects, hence the quadrilateral. Uh, it does sound like some kind of weird Methodist geometry, doesn't it? But it's, it goes back to John Wesley, hence the, the name. And it's basically, what it is, is that Wesley realized that actually, in order to think and act well, as followers of Jesus, there are these four sources of wisdom and insight for us. the scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And the diagram, I think, maybe suggests something that's quite rigid and, the, and these four different things that are quite separate from each other. So I prefer to think of it a bit more like this. To think of streams of water flowing down a hill, maybe after a heavy rainfall, And these streams are flowing and they're intermingling, they're crossing over, sometimes they merge together and then sometimes they split. And they all end up at the bottom flowing into the same pool. I think that's a much better way of thinking about how this works, this kind of dynamic, interactive thing, as these four different streams flow together and inform our thinking and then from there inform our acting as well. So let's look at each of these streams in turn, just briefly. So scripture, first of all, well, I guess that sort of speaks for itself. We're talking about the Bible, although, as I'm sure we know, uh, reading and interpreting the Bible is a lot more complex than we might think. But I think one of the things that I would want to say is that as a community that's seeking to pursue this kind of progressive path, the Bible is still our starting point. There is this kind of stereotype, which always annoys me, uh, of sort of liberal or progressive Christians, is that, well, we've we've chosen to ditch the Bible. We've obviously given up on the Bible because we've uh, we've come to some different understandings of what the Bible might be about or what it might say. That's not true. 
and it's certainly not true for this community. The Bible remains and will always be fundamental to what we're about. In fact, in the autumn, we're planning a little series just looking at what the Bible is and trying to unpack that a little bit more and think about how we, how we read the Bible together. So for me, progressive theology is about allowing the Bible to, to live, to breathe, to be dynamic and alive rather than something that's fixed and static. But it will always be our source and our reference point. So scripture is one of these streams. And then tradition. So tradition is sometimes seen in opposition to the Bible, as if tradition kind of gets in the way of us understanding what the Bible is about, something to be avoided almost. But really, tradition just means that which is handed down. And the Bible itself is part of tradition in that sense. The Bible has been handed down to us from the very earliest days of the church. So tradition encompasses theology, So we might think that our theology is kind of directly taken from the Bible, but it isn't most of the time. We've read the Bible, we've reflected, and down the centuries, great minds have have reflected on the Bible and what it says and generated theologies, which we then inherit sometimes without questioning. But theology is, in in a sense, is part of that tradition that's handed down to us. And, of course... Tradition isn't just about ideas, it's about practice, it's about what we do. So much of what we think about as tradition relates to the way we do things, particularly in church, because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about how church should operate, and so we have to figure that out, and that's why there's this great diversity of denomination and practice and tradition within, ch- within church. Just think about the way that we celebrate communion. Last week we had communion, which was very informal, as it often is here. You could have gone to a Catholic church and celebrated a high mass with everything in Latin, where the whole thing is a performance. Completely different understanding of what it's about, but all trying to put into practice those words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. So tradition is about our beliefs, it's also about our practice. And we might think that tradition gets in the way of growth and change. When I think of of this, I, I... I don't know whether you know the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, but it begins with uh, the fiddler, Tevier, singing his song about tradition and making it very clear that the, whole th- the thing that keeps this Jewish community together is tradition, and nothing is going to change that, because if that starts to shift, then everything falls apart. Tradition is the thing. And we might think, well, that obviously gets in the way of any, any kind of progress or growth or development. But it doesn't have to be that way. And Joe reminded us last week that tradition is really about just going back to our roots. It's about reminding us of where we've come from. It's about recognizing that we're part of a story which goes back through the, through the ages. And that we can't simply abandon that because it doesn't feel comfortable to us anymore, or because it's no longer fashionable. So tradition is something which is, which is valuable to us but is also open to question and open to challenge, has to be in that way. So there, as we saw last week, there is this kind of interaction, this, this to and fro between tradition and newness. So we look to the Bible, we look to the traditions of the church as these sort of objective sources of wisdom. And for many Christians, this is enough. For many Christians, they want to say, well, I don't, I don't want anything else kind of interfering with this. I, I know what the Bible says, I think, and, and I know what my church says, and that's all I need. I don't want anything else getting in the way. 
But Wesley realized that actually if we do that, we're, we're, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. We're losing some valuable sources of insight. And so he said we, we also need to draw on these other tributaries, these other streams, the third of which was reason. So reason. So we apply logical thought, common sense, to what we, believe, what we read in the Bible, to the traditions handed down to us. We ask the question, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Bearing in mind that there are times when we have to accept things which don't seem to make sense, because life is like that. But we ask the question, does this make sense? Does this fit? Is, th is there a logic to this? We're not afraid to ask the questions. But reason also points us beyond our own personal sort of reflection and thought processes to, to the things that we've learned as, as a civilization, to the insights of science, to the natural sciences and the social sciences. A Christian philosopher, Arthur Holmes, said, all truth is God's truth. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, if it seems to speak truly about the world that we live in, then we should embrace it. Not be afraid of it, not be fearful, not be resistant, but take it on board. Draw it into our thinking, our understanding. An obvious example would be in our reading of the opening chapters of Genesis. We can no longer just ignore all the insights and all the learning of science about the way the world is and the way the world has come to be. And that's shaped and changed our understanding of those opening chapters as history has unfolded. So reason, in this broadest sense, provides us with some tools, some insights for, for understanding the world, but also for reading the Bible itself. There's a lot that we can learn from, uh, from the sciences about how we read the Bible, how we interpret the Bible as, a, as an historical text and for reflecting on our traditions as well. So reason has an important part to play. And then there is this stream of experience. So we've got scripture, we've got tradition, we've got reason. And then the fourth stream is experience. And as we seek to understand the world and our place in it, we will bring to that understanding our own experience, our prejudices and blind spots, as well as our wisdom and insight. Whenever we read the Bible or any text, we bring to that reading all that stuff that makes us us. We can't not do that. It's a myth to think that we can just read anything objectively. We bring who we are to our reading. That informs how we read, what we notice and what we miss as we read. So experience is, is part, of, uh, part of this, this kind of... Uh, one of these streams that feeds into our understanding. We bring our own experience of the world, our own understanding of things. And that has to be that way, doesn't it? Because if theology is about helping us to find our place within the world and to make sense of it, we have to bring all that we are to that, that conversation. And so if our theology doesn't align with our understanding and our experience of the world then that sets up a kind of a dissonance. There's a sort of a tension that's created. And, and to some extent, we have to live with tension. We have to live with the fact that things don't always neatly resolve. 
but too much tension and the string breaks. And that's sometimes what happens for, for people as, as they've tried to wrestle with these things. And, and that dissonance has become so great that they felt, I can't do this anymore. This is just tearing me apart in terms of my understanding and my thinking about things. So we need to be able to live with tension, but also we need to ask some big questions when experience and belief don't seem to relate to each other, don't seem to marry up. We need to go back and say, have we understood things correctly? And experience also means listening to the stories of others, not just our own experience, but the experience of others. How have others experienced the world? What's their story? What's your story? What does the world look like to you? And so we have these four streams that flow together, those, these resources that we can draw from in, a, in helping us to kind of figure out how we understand the world and our place in it, how we think about things, how we live our lives as a result of that. So we have scripture, we have tradition, we have reason, and we have experience. And these all feed together uh, into this. So I'm aware that that can all seem quite abstract. Some of you may be thinking, great, yeah, I've got some more concepts that I can play around with in my mind and, and think about and way up and some of you may be thinking yeah so what that's always the, that, that's what Julia would be saying if she's here this morning so what so in honor of my wife who's uh, still unwell um, so what so let's see if we can apply this I thought it might be useful just to kind of apply this to a couple of examples okay sort of like case studies almost of how this might work in practice okay so a couple of uh, topics that I've chosen sort of more or less at random, but they're both things that we've looked at as a church over, over recent uh, months, years. Um, so the first of these is the doctrine of hell. Yeah, okay, so the doctrine of hell. So when we look at the Bible, okay, let's start with the Bible, Scripture. When we look at the Bible uh, to, to sort of see where this comes from. So we find uh, that Jesus talked about hell a bit, not massively, but there are a few places where Jesus talked about hell. Uh, but then it doesn't really feature in the rest of the New Testament. In the, the New Testament letters and, and in the book of Acts, there are no real references to hell. And then, then we get the book of Revelation, which, of course, sort of ups the ante massively with monsters and dragons of lakes of fire and everything. So there's lots of, lots of material in the book of Revelation if you really want to run with this idea. Um, but actually, looking at the Bible as a whole, it's not, there's nothing really in the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't really have a view of life after death. There's no real sense in the Old Testament of a life beyond death. Everything is about the here and now. It's a very material um, view of things. So the idea of hell is there in the Bible, but it's, it's kind of, there are relatively few references. And it's in the teaching of the church, in the tradition of the church, that the idea of hell really kind of takes hold and becomes something which is uh, very significant. The idea develops, and especially in the Middle Ages, uh, and you can find some very lurid artwork depicting what hell might look like. Uh, there are things like Dante's Inferno with its nine circles of hell, um, sort of outlining what it might, uh, what it might look like to, to kind of travel through this, this pathway into hell. 
And then a little bit later in history, in the sort of 18th century, you get sort of evangelical preachers like Jonathan Edwards, who sort of led great revivals in America, but he was very fond of dangling sinners over the, uh, the edge of hell in his preaching, scaring people into conversion, essentially. And so it kind of, over time, and in the, the kind of the traditions and the teaching of the church, this idea of hell as a place of eternal punishment becomes established. The only way to avoid it is through faith in Jesus, explicit faith in Jesus, often expressed in baptism, which is why infant baptism became such an important thing, because a lot of babies didn't make it to eight days old, and so uh, baptism became seen as really important. Otherwise, where would those, those babies go if they died? Because this idea of hell had become such an established thing. Well, what happens when we apply reason to this? Well, there is a kind of logic to it and a morality to it, isn't there? The, the notion that wrongdoing should be accounted for, that perpetrators shouldn't get away with it. There's something about justice and, and punishment. There's something in there, isn't there, that, that has a logic to it and has a morality to it. But there are also some big questions. There's at least two serious objections that we could raise to this idea. Firstly, what about the billions of people throughout human history, have never had the chance to believe in Jesus. What are, we, what are we to do with them? What are we to make of that? And how can eternal torment, even for the most depraved individuals, be in any sense just? Surely it's utterly disproportionate. And Rob Bell, at the beginning of his book, Love Wins, asks some of these similar questions in a very pointed way. I'll just read you an excerpt from this. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church. I'd been given a series of teachings on peacemaking, and we invited artists to display their paintings, poems, and sculptures that reflected their understanding of what it means to be a peacemaker. One woman included in her work a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, which a number of people found quite compelling, but not everyone. Someone attached a piece of paper to it. On the piece of paper was written, Reality check, he's in hell. Really? Gandhi's in hell? He is? We have confirmation of this. Somebody knows this, without a doubt. And that somebody decided to take on the responsibility of letting the rest of us know. Of all the billions of people who've ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place? And every single other person suffering torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? This doesn't just raise disturbing questions about God, it raises questions about the beliefs themselves. Why them? Why you? Why me? Why not him or her or them? And so on. That's reason being applied to this idea. That, that, those are all good questions, sensible questions, questions which arise from this understanding, questions which might challenge us to, to rethink what it is that we're believing here. That's reason being applied 
to this particular idea. And then there's the role of experience. I've met many good people throughout my life who are not followers of Jesus. Can it really be the case that their goodness counts for nothing? But on the other hand, thinking about ourselves and our our own kind of sense of the world, most, if not all of us, I think there's something very human about that sense of uh, a desire for justice, isn't there? So there's something here that we want to hold on to, I think. We don't want to simply discard that. But at the same time, there are some enormous questions that might make us think again about how we have formulated this and how we've understood this. So those sorts of questions might make some of us feel like we want to abandon the Bible completely or even church or even faith because it just doesn't seem to, the questions seem too big and the dissonance seems too great. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think the point of this is that then it takes us back to the Bible, back to those traditions, to then look at them afresh and to say, okay, have we understood this right? Are there other ways of reading this which bring together our experience? which take onto account those, those sensible questions that we would want to ask. And maybe we might find that that vivid language that's being used is being used to express something which is a bit more prosaic, but actually really, really important, which is that God is just and justice will be done. Maybe we've just misread some of that language. So the point is not then to say, oh well, so here's the new way of understanding things. The point is that it's about a way of doing things. It's about a methodology. It's about an approach that says we're going to ask the sensible questions. We're going to reflect on our own experience and understanding of the world. And we're not afraid to bring those things together with what it is that we believe, what it is that we've been taught. And we're not afraid to go back and say, hang on a minute, Do we need to reconfigure this? Do we need to rethink things? So what Wesley was arguing for, Wesley's approach means that we don't need to be afraid to ask those questions or express those doubts. The second um, question is certainly one that we've we've, uh, looked at here and I'm conscious in in reflecting on this that it's, it's a huge area that Uh, with a lot of sensitivities around it, but I wanted just to to sort of say a little bit about this. And the the second question, which is around the issue of same-sex relationships, which, as I say, is something that we've looked at together as a church. The Bible contains a number of passages which seem to, which address this issue, and at first sight, all of those passages seem pretty clear in prohibiting sexual relationships between people of the same sex. The traditions of the church largely support this view. It's one of the often stated arguments against change. The church has believed this for 2,000 years, so how can we change things now? When we apply reason to this question, we might seriously ask whether God would be opposed to loving, committed relationships. Would that be the case from what we know of God, from the rest of the Bible, from from Jesus particularly? When we approach this question armed with our modern understanding of, of sexuality in all its complexity, 
we might well ask whether those traditional understandings of human relationships are still fit for purpose, whether they too much reflect a culture which is so different from ours, an understanding which is so different. And as for the 2,000 years of church teaching, well, the church has been wrong before. 2,000 years doesn't make it right. So we can apply reason to this, and we can ask some of those important questions. But it seems to me, actually, it's experience is the real, the, the question which, or, or the stream which kind of really forces us to revisit this question. Because fundamentally, this isn't a theoretical issue to be debated. It's about people, isn't it? It's about human beings made in the image of God. It's about relationships between individuals. And for us as a community here at Oasis, I think a crucial point in us working our way through this was when Joe and Sarah came and shared with us on a Sunday morning. And we heard their story. And I think once you've heard a story like the story that they have shared with us and other stories too, it seems to me you have to go back and say, have we misunderstood this? Have we read this wrongly? No matter that it's 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 10,000 years, have we misunderstood? Have we misread? Because the stories are so powerful. Experience, for me, is the thing that draws us back and sends us back to reconsider. And it's a dynamic thing. It's about a conversation that is ongoing. And if we draw from these streams of reason and experience alongside scripture and tradition, we might find that our views change quite dramatically. But we might not. We might go through that conversation and actually come back to exactly where we started. And that's okay, because as I said at the beginning, this is not about replacing one set of ideas with another set of ideas. It's about an approach that says, I'm going to take all of these things seriously. All these things which reflect who we are as human beings. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Bring all of this to bear. That's the point, that we draw on all of these resources that we seek to do so honestly and openly in order to arrive at the best possible understanding. And we do this in order to live well, in order to follow Jesus as faithfully as we can in a complex and changing world. And being church means that we're trying to do this together. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.